0: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. We interrupt our program to bring you a special
1: broadcast. The German news agency Transocean said today in a broadcast that the
0: Allied invasion had begun. I repeat, the German news agency Transocean said today in a broadcast that the Allied invasion had begun. There was no Allied confirmation.
1: Soldiers, sailors, and
0: airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you.
1: Bob Trout and Edward R. Morrow, respectively, there of CBS News, from a broadcast dating back 67 years. And turn our memories back toward that important battle that was really the beginning of the end, certainly of World War II in Europe. Um, And it's amazing because if we think about the ensuing years that have passed, imagine for a moment the fact that most of the boys, and many of them were just that, 17, 18-year-old boys that landed on beaches with names like Utah and Normandy uh, on that date back in 1944, that many of them today would be in their late 80s. This, as um, Tom Brokaw called it, indeed, America's greatest generation who saw some of the most difficult times, built some of the greatest character, to be sure, of any generation. And as we are losing contact with these brave men and women day by day as the clock ticks down, I think it's important to be reminded of the tremendous sacrifices that they made for all of us. Much of that takes place inside the pages of a book by my next guest... The book is called Quiet Hero, Secrets from My Father's Past. And joining me tonight on the program is a young lady who certainly is a familiar voice to many of us. Uh, She is an award-winning journalist, three times over, in fact, receiving Emmy Awards. She has been a correspondent on um, such highly rated news programs as Fox News, MSNBC, and uh, currently with CBS, and um, is the author of this new book. And Rita Cosby, thanks so much for taking time to be with us tonight.
2: Thank you. I'm thrilled to be with you. And, and Craig, I have a flash for you. Um, I just found out I made the New York Times bestseller list a few minutes ago. Well, congratulations. So you are literally the first one to know, aside from my father. You know,
1: <laughs> being, a, being a journalist from way back, I always love a scoop, and so I'm, I'm pleased to be able to scoop. Let me, re, let me reiterate the introduction. And New York Times bestselling author, Rita Cosby. <laughs> oh, I'm
2: so thrilled. And I'll just tell you, I literally just hung up the phone with my dad, Craig who is alive as you talk about a lot of these guys in their eighties my dad is eighty-five he was so choked up and so happy because you think about here is a guy who could not speak almost a word of english when he was saved by u.s. troops and said i want to come to america because america is the greatest country in the world and came from you know poland was a teenager thrust to war comes to america and for it to be on the bestseller list my father is so touched and so humbled and so happy that people are learning about this part of history, and and also learning about the comrades, many of whom did not make it back.
1: You know, it's an amazing story because as much as we think about, you know, television channels like the Military Channel that are dedicated to the events of World War II, and the books that are out there, um, and, and so much material, and yet there are so many stories that have never been told, and it 's interesting because this this generation uniquely kind of kind of had that we went, we did a job, we came back, and now we 're moving on with life, e- even in your own experience in the case of bringing your dad 's story to print uh, was one that you literally accidentally ran into
2: oh, absolutely, and my father, as you talked about, never talked about this, and to this day, you could even tell when I just broke the, you know the news that we made the New York Times bestseller list, he was so humbled and so happy that this story and that the comrades are getting the recognition it's always about someone else it's never his story it's always i'm happy that the polish people and i'm happy that the american troops are getting the recognition and and that is endemic of that whole group that whole generation there's just this incredible dignity and in my father's case you know this story you know i hope that people get it first of all for for father's day it is the perfect gift And the information's on quiethero.org, quiethero.org. It's called Quiet Hero Secrets from My Father's Past, because part of the proceeds, by the way, go to wounded troops and their families. So it goes to a great cause. But my father, you know, this is very much a bit of a love story, too, because my dad and I really did not know each other until a few years ago. And um, when I grew up I knew my father went through war. I did not know what he went through. I remember seeing scars all over his body, Craig, when he was you know, when he came back from a run and I was eight years old and I remember this moment vividly. We were camping, he came back jogging, took his shirt off, he was drenched in sweat and I remember all of a sudden he took a shirt off and I saw these scars all over his arms and a hole in one of his arms and I remember thinking, That doesn't look normal and asking my mother what happened to dad did he get in a fight or something you know like a a curious child and my mother said to me i'll never forget this. she said Rita, your father went through tough times growing up we don't talk about it Mm. and the door was closed and then my father left the family one christmas very abruptly you know i heard my parents arguing in the other room and my dad said i'm leaving and i thought he was leaving work and it turned out he was leaving us and so I really did not have a father present in my life for decades. And I, you know, grew, you know, grew up on television, you know, with, and my mother was really my mother and my father. And here I was, you know, at the pinnacle of my career, you know, doing all this great stuff on television, and yet, you know, did not have a father present in my life and always wondered what happened to my dad and why he was so detached. And then suddenly my mother passed away. And in my mother's belongings, my brother and I found this old suitcase, and inside was essentially my father's life. It was a rusty POW tag. And then I emblazoned with the word Stalag 4B on it and a prisoner number. And then I found a red and white fighting Polish armband with blood and dirt all over it. And then I found a card that had code names. This person had this sort of secret life. And then I found a card of an ex-POW named Richard Kosobutski. And when I saw this, Craig, I just wept. I, And it was this moment in my life And it wasn't that long ago. This was, you know, just about two years ago. And I sat there in the storage locker, and I said to myself, you know what, I have not had a father present. My father certainly made a lot of mistakes. You know, he left us, you know, high and dry. And my mother was devastated. We were devastated. And never understood what happened to my father emotionally, too. Or I could forgive this man, because clearly whatever pain I went through could not compare what he went through as a prisoner of war
1: you know and that's the amazing part of this story because for many that are familiar around the periphery of the history of world war ii and sadly even those numbers are, are, are dwindling um you know we, we think of some of the early events that took place in europe the Anschluss, the annexation of of uh, austria literally swallowing up with czechoslovakia but the linchpin the implosion point was, in fact, the German invasion of Poland in September of thirty nine, and, and, and you know what what's
2: interesting, the... Craig? My father was outside, saw the invasion, literally saw the invasion at the beginning of World War II.
1: And and, and it's interesting because we, we look at the fall of Poland that took place so rapidly, and of course, you know, we, we won't spend time tonight... Um, in our brief moments together, Rita, pointing fingers at how the, the French made promises that they did not keep, the British made promises that and they the did Russians not keep, totally the, Rus- the, the Poland, and the Russians you know? ended up becoming complicit with the Germans and swallowing up Poland. But the battle particularly for Poland and for Warsaw, and this, you know, we're left with the impression that the country surrendered inside of a week, but that really isn't true, particularly for that battle that took place in Warsaw, and your dad at the time, I understand, from your book, Rita, Quiet Hero, was a teenage resistance fighter there in Warsaw.
2: Oh, and right in the throes of it. And and you obviously have a great sense of history, Craig. You know, and I. it's amazing when you hear these stories. And as you pointed out early on, this is a story that is rarely told. So often we hear about the American G.I.s and all of their incredible heroics, you know, which deserve to be told. And this is a story, a very unusual story, even for folks who know World War II quite well. You rarely hear such a deeply personal story of being in the inside of the Polish resistance. And in my father's case, he was 13 when World War II, he saw the planes hovering above, And his father thought it was an air show. And my dad said, no, I don't think that's an air show. And the next thing they know, the the bombs are dropping. And my father, at a very young age, decided to become a resistance fighter and became a very, apparently, you know, apparently a a quite courageous one from the records and from other comrades who did survive. And my father was in some of the most brutal fights. I mean, you can imagine. And the stories of the resistance are incredible, uh, of incredible heroics and I think just utter patriotism. And, and, and it's so inspiring to know that, you know, here my dad, you know, here he is a teenager, and they had Molotov cocktails and sticks. At one point in their unit of 150 men, they had two guns, and yet they are charging the most vicious war machine in the world. And my father was fighting the Nazis for five and a half years. Think about it. Five and a half years with Molotov cocktails and sticks, basically. He was fighting 100 yards from his house. And I think that's why there were such ferocious fighters and such incredible fighters. With anything they had, they were going to fight because they were fighting for survival of their country, survival of their family. And then ultimately my father was captured. He was taken to a POW camp and didn't know if he was going to live another day and luckily escaped. And, you know, my favorite part of my dad's story, Craig, and I think this is... This is A great reminder of who we are as Americans, because my father counts his blessings every day that he lives in the greatest country in the world. He escaped at 90 pounds and 6 feet tall. Can you imagine? And he's one of the more healthy guys. And he's in the woods. He's with fellow comrades who escaped with him. And there he is in the woods, and he looks up, and he sees a plane. And they think, okay, it's a German plane, and they die for the ditches. And then the plane comes by again, and they think, you know, they're in Germany. They're in the you know, middle of Nazi-controlled Germany. It's wartime. You know, they, you, you're, it's crazy in the camp. It's dangerous as heck in the camp. But you can imagine how scary it is outside of the camp, too. You know, mean what do you do? You're in Nazi-controlled territory. And suddenly they look up, and something was thrown out of the plane, and they just assumed it was a grenade, and they die for the ditches. And then they look up, and they see a star and they realized that it's an american plane and what was dropped out was a chocolate bar with a note wrapped around it tied with a red ribbon and the note said welcome it's safe to walk now during daytime there are no troops between you and our american lines mm. you have 15 miles to walk and you're free
1: Let's pause at that point. We'll pick up the story around the corner. If you've just tuned in, our conversation tonight, saying this phrase for the first time on radio, New York Times bestselling author, Rita Cosby. A look at Quiet Hero. More information, by the way, on the book, and you can order it, too, online at quiethero.org. We'll come back to more of Rita's story and the story of her father as this edition of Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. When I entered, men crowded around, tried to lift me to their shoulders. They were too weak. Many of them could not get out of bed. As I walked down to the end of the barracks, there was applause from the men too weak to get out of bed. It sounded like the hand clapping of babies. As we walked out into the courtyard, a man fell dead. Two others, they must have been over 60, were crawling towards the latrine. I saw it, but will not describe it.
1: Welcome back to the program there. Edward R. Morrow from CBS describing his experience with the first American soldiers to walk into the German concentration camp at Buchenwald as it was liberated from the hands of the Nazis at the close of World War II. Welcome back to the program. With me tonight, New York Times bestselling author Rita Cosby, the book Quiet Hero, Secrets from My Father's Past. Let me pause for a moment at this point. Rita, because I have to wonder, you know, we, we think about this generation that that said so little of their escapades of the horror that they saw and experienced during World War II, unlike subsequent generations. Back at the time, we referred to it as shell-shocked for those that generally kind of seem to be uh, um, emotionally a bit uh, challenged by all of these experiences. Today, I suppose, uh, better educated, we might refer to it as post-traumatic stress disorder. I would suspect from the moment you opened up that tattered, worn leather suitcase and and realized the significance of the items that you were looking at, it it must have answered a lot of questions for you about your dad and and the challenges that took place in your family.
2: Oh, it it absolutely did, Craig. And and when when I saw this, I knew I had to call my dad. I knew I had to forgive him. And... Despite, you know, years of anger and confusion, too, you know, much of it was, how could this man walk out and not be emotional, and as you talked about, being very emotionally void, and so it answered so many questions, and I reached out to my dad, I was, I was glad he was alive, I was glad he was ready to share his story, and he said, you know, I, I wasn't ready years ago, I have not talked about this in 65 years, he didn't even tell my mother, And so he said, you know, I think I'm ready to share the story if we can honor the troops who saved me and my comrades who didn't make it back. And I also feel you're an adult now, Rita. You know, it was too painful to share as a child, you know, to let you know then. And I think I'm ready. And that's why I tell everybody, too, I hope that this book inspires other people, too, because the most wonderful emails I have gotten, Craig... And I ha- and my website is quiethero.org, quiethero.org. And I'd love to hear everybody's story because when I read them, and I read them, I, I am so personally moved. My father literally, you know, uh, went through en- enormous hurdles, and me and my father went through enormous hurdles together. And I feel like if we can reconcile, almost anybody can because it, it almost seemed insurmountable. And I've gotten so many beautiful emails from people who have written me and said, you know I didn't I wasn't talking to my dad for 20 or 30 years and I wrote him a uh, you know wrote him in the book please dad let's talk and sent him a copy of your book and now we're meeting for lunch tomorrow wow and I've got and you know that that's the, that is you know the lord working that is you know that is that is a higher power by far and I am so blessed that this book has been able to be a bridge builder for so many people maybe even who haven't even encountered someone with war
1: The other thing that comes to mind is you you talk about the title of this book. We think hero, uh, a word that we easily banty about these days to which we don't assign an awful lot of of significance. And yet other words, too, that come to mind that that unfold on inside the pages of your book, Quiet Hero, as as your dad recounts the stories and talks about those that were responsible in in rescuing him as he made his way, you know, escaped essentially there from um, from that stalag. Um, words like valor and honor and sacrifice, words that I, I think to certain degrees, Rita, have largely disappeared from the American lexicon, words that most people today, just going about day-to-day life and business, really don't understand or think about or understand or or perhaps comprehend the significance of in relationship to what men like your dad went through, not just in in Europe and dealing with the the torture and horrors of Nazism, but then those from other countries like Australia and England and Canada and the United States that went to places like Europe to help liberate those people from the clutches of Nazism.
2: Oh, absolutely, and 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 when you talk about, you use the word valor, I I think of one line that my father said, and and I think it just epitomizes the integrity of of not just my father, but but the men who served with him. And by the way, there were women also fighting in the resistance, too, which which is interesting. It was one of the first times in history that women played a huge role in military operations, because everybody was needed. You know, men, women, everybody was fighting for, they were all fighting for their country. But it, my dad told me this great line, and this is at the age of fifteen. Think about—you know—it's amazing to think at the age of fifteen. Now you see kids playing Nintendo or skateboarding, Craig, or doing whatever they're doing at fifteen. And my dad, at the age of fifteen, could have been snuck out of the country. His mother said, "I might be able to buy you out through the black market. I might be able to find a way to get you to, you know, Switzerland, a neutral country." And my father, who was in the resistance at this time, said to my mother, "No." I am staying and fighting for my country. And he gave this great line. He said, I would rather die with friends than live with strangers. Mm. I am staying and fighting for my country. And you think about, you know, saying that at the age of 15, knowing that most likely you were going to die for your country because the odds were certainly against you. In my father's unit, 80% of the men did not survive. Wow. So you think about, he knew he was going into a bloodbath. Well,
1: and, and certainly, I mean, having having lived through initially the, the, the bombing of Poland, of Warsaw, uh, by the time the Gen- the Germans were done with their job there, um, 85% of all the buildings in that city were completely destroyed.
2: Oh, and, and if you look at the pictures from that, in fact... This is interesting. Where my father was fighting was in the old town part of Warsaw, and that's where some of the most ferocious and, and I guess, you know, uh, determined resistance fighters were.
1: Now, would that, Rita, technically, been considered uh, near, or at, or in even the uh, the so-called ghetto?
2: Um, it was right near the ghetto, okay. literally right next to the ghetto. And in fact, my father was just about a hundred yards or so from the ghetto wall. His home. I mean, that's how close it was. It was literally in that area exactly. It was literally in that area. So that's where they were rounding up all the Jews. And by the way, my father was so supportive of those inside the ghetto. My father believed it didn't matter... If you were Jewish or not Jewish, if you were a good person, my father wanted to help you and was willing to help those inside, even at the, you know, the price of his own life, if that's what
1: it meant. Well, and it sounds like he got a lot of that, obviously, from his parents, your grandparents, whom I understand you have never met, but weren't they engaged in doing some stuff even kind of discreetly in the black market that were that was being used to assist people in the resistance?
2: Yes, they were actually helping, and they were giving food. They were doing tons of things to help those, and also my father's mother, was a really incredible woman, and I think you, you talk about sort of where you learned your morals from. Hitler did not want anyone to practice religion, especially if you were inside or outside the ghetto. And if you were, they, they treated those outside of the ghetto horribly as well. Obviously, those inside the ghetto were just, you know, decimated, and, it's, and I think it's unconscionable what happened. It's incredible and just horrific. And my father, outside, they were also brutalized. And if my father had, at the age of 13, started writing anti, anti-Nazi symbols on the ghetto wall, can you imagine this? And even though you think about it's kind of child's play, that was a death sentence in Poland. It didn't matter how old you were. If the Nazis had caught anybody writing anti-Nazi propaganda on the ghetto walls of all places, you, they, you were going to be killed. And they would go and, like, clean it off, and then my father would go back two days later and write another, you know, Hitler is a blank, or a swastika hanging like from a gallows. And it was a complete insult, and used to just infuriate them. And my and my father's mother, at a even in the height of it all, where she was not supposed to pray or practice religion, she still had a hidden altar in the basement of her apartment. And they had five bombed out apartments; that kept moving, but in each apartment, she kept a hidden altar, and everywhere. I went down and prayed for my father's safety, prayed for the country's safety, prayed for those in the ghetto. And that was the kind of environment that my father grew up in, and I, and I do. I think it transcended into who he was as a fighter.
1: There's another side of the story that I want to come to when we come back after a brief time out, Rita. Um, that's an amazing one, and that is that after all of these years, 60-something years, your dad being able to travel back And you were there with him. I want to have you share what that phenomenal experience was like. And if you've tuned in a bit late tonight, we are visiting in this segment of the program with best-selling time, uh, New York Times best-selling author, I should say, Rita Cosby. The book is called Quiet Hero, Secrets from My Father's Past. This is a great gift-giving idea, whether you know of someone of that generation uh, that can be honored through the stories in a book like this, um, a great father's Day gift, as Rita mentioned, this is being used as a wonderful means of tearing down years of silence and 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 non communication between families um, younger kids that never understood why Dad always seemed to be kind of detached in a way or 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 cold emotionally. This book can not only be an eye-opener, but a relationship restorer, even as this experience has been for Rita and for her father. The book, again, Quiet Hero, available on the web at quiethero.org. That's quiethero.org. We'll come back to more of our conversation, New York Times bestselling author Rita Cosby, as this edition of Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Welcome back to the program and uh, joining us for an extended segment here. uh, Rita Cosby has been gracious enough to remain with us. She, of course, author of the New York Times bestselling book, Quiet Hero, Secrets from My Father's Past. Uh, The book, by the way, available through her website at quiethero.org. That's quiethero.org. You know, there are so many amazing aspects to this story from the discovery of eventually what became opening of the truth of what your dad experienced um, during World War II um, as not only a prisoner of war but as a resistance fighter Um, but then of course that leading the gateway to really the restoration of your relationship with him after many many years you had the opportunity at one point Rita to go back uh, to take your father back to Poland what was that like
2: oh it it was incredible and you know what, what what caused it was I gave him back these items that we found in this old tan tattered suitcase that we talked about earlier that my mother had left behind and it turned out it was again his rusty p-o-w tag and his fighting armband the red and white fighting armband that was dirty and still had blood on it so clearly had been worn and i gave him back the suitcase and i surprised him and i said i have something for you and when i gave him back the suitcase my dad just held on to these items especially that red and white armband. And as it turns out, when he was fighting the Nazis, he was wearing all the, you know, they didn't have, this wasn't an organized army, this was the resistance, this was a bunch of ragtag citizen soldiers, teenagers. And literally they would have to kill a Nazi to wear some clothes, and they wore, you know, they had, you know, ratter, you know tattered clothes before that, would grab a Nazi uniform, and the only thing that would separate them from the Nazis was this armband, and it actually gave the resistance a leg up because they could get very close sometimes to the Nazis, and then they would turn and point to, hey, I'm a resistance fighter, I'm not one of you, and then they were able to approach him and kill them. And you think about they'd have, that's how close they would often have to get. So you think about how scary that must have been. This was not you know, long-term fighting with rifles and, and tanks. My, they didn't have it, you know, so they had to go up close, and that was their advantage. And when my father saw that red and white fighting armband, Craig, he just cried and he was holding on to it. And then he looked up and he said, You know, I wonder who survived. I wonder who made it. And I said, You know what, Dad, the president of Poland, I just I had just met him literally a few weeks before, invited us back. And my father said, All right, let's go back together. And the whole my whole life growing up, Craig, my father you know talked about poland as being held that there were terrible things that happened there and i never knew what and i never knew what role he played or what or what happened but i I never thought he would ever in, in my lifetime ever go back to poland or his lifetime And when he said that i said let's do it and literally a few days later i think it was we were on a plane to poland and my father held my hand when we took off you know and and when we landed and it was like a child he was so nervous and it was, you know, there was so it was, you know, sixty-five years of emotions, and he came back and got a hero's welcome from the president of Poland, because he was in that die-hard fighting, pl- you know, place. The guys, my father escaped through the sewers at one point from the Nazis. Can you imagine? Yes. There was no place above ground, and those fighters who escaped through the sewers, my dad was one of the last men out they are really considered some of the real heroes
1: in Poland. Here's a guy that, that spent an entire lifetime, Rita, um, controlling his emotions, denying it, yeah. stuffing them down. Uh, suddenly now he finds himself, 60-plus years later, back to his home country of Poland. Um, I would suspect that that Stalag, Stalag 4B probably doesn't exist anymore, but there are prison camps that have have been kept open for tourists to come and see and for people to to basically experience that we should never forget. You had an opportunity to tour one of those camps, Auschwitz, uh, in Poland with your father. What was that like for him? Uh, You know, as a journalist, you must have been watching very intently your father's reactions to the experience of going back in and and the memories that must have just been flooding so much emotion to the surface for him.
2: Oh, so many emotions. And, and in fact, Stalag 4B, some of it is still there, and some of the record books are there. Really? And we found record books of my father there and also another camp that he was at. So we well, actually sent crews over to Germany where that camp was, and uh, in in Poland where Auschwitz is my father actually had relatives who were taken to Auschwitz. Because early on, most people don't realize Auschwitz originally was for resistance fighters. And so my father knew a number of people who were taken to this horrible place called Auschwitz, you know, in the early days, and they didn't know really what was going on. You know, they didn't see the people or they came back vegetables and would never speak again. And so when my father went there, We were speechless. And my father, the minute he walked into some of the barracks that are still standing there, and it is such a somber feeling to go to Auschwitz because it's huge. And the fact that it's still there and still huge, and that that's not all of it, it's overwhelming to the emotions. They're just so angry about man's inhumanity, to man, and, Mm -hmm. and what happened. And my father, we walked through a barrack, and he said, this is exactly like the bed I was in because the the germans had everything was very uniform and what they used in one camp was very similar to what they used in other camps like my dad's, and it brought back all these emotions and the other thing my dad also did was we went to a place in warsaw where my father said he lost all emotion and my father in the middle of the fighting and remember they barely had any guns they had two guns in their unit one of them was my dad's and he barely had any bullets in it everything was scarce And my father had gotten wind through some other guys that there was a tank that was seized by the resistance, a German tank, which is a a huge coup. Remember, they're outgunned, they're outmanned, and suddenly they get a German tank. And my father's girlfriend was going to run all over the tank and, you know, parade on the tank along with a lot of his comrades. And my father said, oh, there's something kind of fishy. This is a little too good to be true. And he gave his girlfriend his Luger and said, just take this, his gun. Just take this, just in case and he walked away he was heading back in another direction went a few blocks and suddenly the ground shook and the tank exploded
1: mm. booby trapped
2: it was booby trapped and everybody on the on the tank was killed 500 people were killed it was taken to a busy town square 800 were injured there's now a huge marker there in Poland symbolizing what happened and my father ran back looking for a piece of his friend And my father said, this is in the middle of fighting still. And he ran back, and he said when he went there, there was no trace of anything. Of course, nothing of his friends, nothing of his girlfriend, nothing of his Luger. Everything was evaporated. And he was just walking there in rivers of blood. And my father said at that moment, he said he had to compartmentalize. He had to be able to keep fighting because he wanted to keep fighting for those who had just perished, for his country. And he said, I had to block it out. And when we went back to the scene together, my father just broke down in tears, Greg, It was so emotional for me. And he looked up at me and said, I'm so sorry. He said, I did the best I could as a father. I tried, but after this moment, I had no emotion in life. Nothing fazed me. And losing a family, you know, decades later, I couldn't be affected because I lost hundreds of friends in an instant. And, you know, and of course I said, I I forgive you, Dad. And, And that was a very dramatic moment for me and a very powerful moment. And and after that moment I have broken through with my dad. My dad is truly a different man today than he was, you know, years ago.
1: Indeed so, and that, that, that takes serious. us back full circle to that observation by a you know, fellow um, television journalist uh, Tom Brokaw. This indeed was uh, our greatest generation. Rita, thanks so much for the book and the time and the insights and uh, for your dad. Uh, when you talk to him next, uh Again, thanks to him, uh, he may not regard himself as a hero, but he's the, a hero in the eyes of many of us.
2: Thank you so much, and, and I hope everybody gets the book. It's quiethero.org, quiethero.org, and it's Quiet Hero Secrets from My Father's Past, and, and I hope it, uh, the journey inspires everyone as much as it's inspired my dad and I.
1: Undoubtedly so. Again, New York Times best-selling author Rita Cosby, the book Quiet Hero. More information on the web at quiethero.org.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: We've often, I think, on the topic of taxes as Americans, drawn the conclusion that historically it was things like the Boston Tea Party and the sense of taxation without representation that spurred the American Revolution and brought America to where she is today. My next guest, though, will suggest mm, not quite true. Played a role, to be sure. But in fact, instead of the revolution sparking by, uh, sparked by high taxes, it would instead be outrage against British attempts to suppress God-given those so-called inalienable rights that we see articulated in the Constitution that we have today. Some insights now as we're joined by the director of the Center for Military and Veteran Studies at Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina. He's also the author of 16 best-selling books. His latest is entitled By the Hand of Providence, How Faith Shaped the American Revolution. And, Rod Gregg, thanks so much for being with us tonight.
3: Thank you. Glad to be here.
1: What headed you down this trajectory? I mean, obviously, you've spent a lot of your life in the arena of, of looking at the Battle of Gettysburg in one of your books. You, you, you've been very much focused on the founding of our nation and and the roots that we have. And, and I think, to be sure, most of us, certainly people listening to a program like this, see the faith-based roots of our nation. But to take it a step further now and, and suggest that as much as we've typically understood the American Revolution to be sparked by taxation without representation actually coming down to something a lot more valuable, quite frankly. Uh, this, this, I think, is some new news for folks.
3: Well, I think it's uh, it's an old story that needs to be re- retold because it's been uh, neglected in our day and has been largely forgotten uh, by uh, by our nation. But it it's really uh, it goes to the heart of who we are and, and what we became as a nation. And the American Revolution was... A faith-based revolution because Americans were a faith-based people, and that faith was a biblical one. So the things that you uh, mentioned—taxation, lack of representation in Parliament, uh, events that uh, were somewhat of a catalyst, like the Boston Tea Party, other protests—all those things were uh, had a role, and all of them uh, were kind of the dominoes falling. But uh, they were symptomatic of something deeper, and that is that the American people, as as you put it well. American people were were biblical. Colonial American people and the Americans at the time of the Revolution were uh, biblically literate. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody was devout. You had the the devout, you had the nominal, you had the uninterested. But the the American thought at the time was uh, firmly founded on the Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, The culture was... um, predominantly protestant it was overwhelmingly christian and it was almost universally judeo-christian in its approach and that was the foundation of american culture law and government so when these events occurred these controversial events over a period of time increasing numbers of uh, americans came to to view king george the third and parliament as attempting to usurp the higher law of god and to uh, force the law of man instead. They saw them as uh, usurping uh, what they called inalienable or God-given rights, rights to life, to liberty, to what they called the the freedom to pursue happiness. And they came to view eventually, uh, in great numbers, uh, King George III as a tyrant. That's why uh, American troops marched off to war in the Revolution under battle flags adorned with with the slogan that said, Resistance to tyrants is obedience to God.
1: You you take the title of your new book, By the Hand of Providence, um, from a quote from George Washington. Um, and I think as we think of him as, uh, you know, one of the key founding fathers... Uh, uh, the first president of the United States, although was somebody in there actually for a couple of days or something, I forget all the details on that. But 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 widely recognized as the first president of the United States, uh, as we see the role that he played, Valley Forge all the way through the list. Give us some insights in terms of this man in particular and the the role that his faith played in taking the risk that he did in the founding of our nation.
3: Well, uh, some people have made the the case. Uh, I think kind of a weak one. The case uh, in recent uh, years that the presidents of the Continental Congress uh, in those days before the Constitution during the, the time of the Articles of Confederation were in a sense presidents, but they were not presidents of the United States. Uh, Washington was the first. It's, it's really, you really cannot overemphasize the influence of George Washington. Now, uh, the American Revolution was really taken forward by the American people. They're often overlooked, and the leaders reflected the worldview, the faith of the American people. So the American people, you had their leaders in the Continental Congress, and then you had uh, George Washington, who was really heads above all others, Uh, and he was greatly influential in inspiring his officers and troops to stay in this uh, this movement, to stay in this revolution, and he also inspired the American people. And it wasn't because He was a good general, and he became a good general. He became a great strategist, a good tactician, but he grew into that. What inspired the American people about Washington was his character, and that character was based on his personal faith, and that faith was clearly biblical. And that faith,
1: talk talk to me about your research in terms of the influence on that faith, on the decisions and the risks that he took personally um, in the American Revolution.
3: Well, Washington... was um, a a low-church Anglican uh, who was very serious about his faith. He was quiet about his faith. He wasn't the kind of man who would sit around like Sam Adams, for instance, and and, 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 uh, engage or lead a dinnertime theological discussion. Uh, He was a low-church Anglican. He he didn't speak in the, the vernacular of a 21st century evangelical, although his doctrine, personal doctrine that he believed as, a, as an Anglican was certainly uh, uh, in in that category of being uh, historic, evangelical, uh, orthodox Christian doctrine. He was certainly not a deist, as some have claimed. Uh, there were very few deists, actually, involved among uh, the American people and, and among the founders, their leaders. Uh, the uh, the historian, there was a historian uh, in the 20th century, Perry Miller, who spent his life studying the colonial era. He really was a great expert on American colonial uh, life in the colonial era. And he described it well. He said that deism was what he called an exotic plant that never took root in America because of the overwhelming influence of the biblical worldview, that Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, So a deist was one who, who believed in an impersonal God, almost like a force. Uh, a a force type creator who uh, launched and jump started his creation, then walked away from it. That's not the God that George Washington believed in. And uh, he was consistent in both his private writings, which were voluminous, and also in his, uh, his public statements, which were many, and consistent in expressing uh, that uh, faith, which was clearly, without question, a biblical faith. And so in, uh, in, in Washington's uh, decision-making uh, and the things he did, the things he didn't do, really governed by this. You look, for instance, uh, he stands in real contrast to some of the leadership demonstrated by British commanders uh, who went into areas, sometimes, uh, particularly in the South, where uh, uh, they could have probably had they handled the war right, could probably have... Uh, uh, Americans were all reluct- generally reluctant revolutionaries, and the British in some areas could have uh, kindled uh, a great deal of support. But their behavior, their conduct, uh, really alienated people, and it made uh, Americans in droves go over to the side of the Patriot movement. Well, Washington was contrast to that in the way that he treated his enemies, the way he treated loyalist civilians. He made sure that they were not taken advantage of. He made sure that they weren't robbed and plundered like the British did. There was a real discipline there. He also uh, 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 routinely observed victories by holding worship services. Uh, He encouraged his troops to observe the national days of prayer that the Continental Congress called, and there were many of them during the Revolution. Uh, He at one time uh, urged his troops to conduct themselves, in his words, uh, uh, with their behavior as becoming a Christian soldier. Uh, He made sure that uh, the Army was equipped with chaplains he took that very seriously and encouraged his men to, uh, to pick chaplains who were strong in their faith. Uh, so you see consistently through Washington's words and his behavior, this character and this character was reflection of his personal faith.
1: If you've just joined our conversation tonight, Rod Gregg is with us. He, of course, is the director of the Center for Military and Veteran Studies at Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina. A new book entitled By the Hand of Providence, How Faith Shaped the American Revolution. We'll come back to more of our look at the role of faith in the founding of our nation as this edition of Lifeline continues